You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with the sermon this afternoon, in which we'll consider the last section in the Heidelberg Catechism about the law, summarizes the law and teaches why this law is preached the way that it is. In connection with that, then, we will look at two passages of Scripture. The first is Acts chapter 3, the verses 11 through 26. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us us, as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked that a murderer be released to to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man, whom you see and know, was made to be strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he has promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, All the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Thus far, our reading from Acts will now turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the question and answers 114 and 115. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our whole life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness of Christ in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the sermon this afternoon is going to be, by necessity, a practical sermon. It has to be. Everything, in fact, that we're going to discuss this afternoon is going to be practical. Now, it may not be practical in the way that you're used to thinking of practical, but it will be very practical, I can assure you. Practical, from the root praxis, has to do with deeds. Has to do with what we do. And what we do as Christians, we call that obedience. That's what, as Christians, we're called to do. The Lord would have us be very practical people. He's called us in our Christian life, and we've seen that as we've touched on each one of the commandments over the last many weeks. We've seen that the Lord calls us to do things. And this renewed life that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God calls us to obedient living, to a life of doing, not doing in order to be redeemed. Jesus Christ has already done that for us, but doing because it's beautiful, because it praises God, because it is what we were created for in the first place. The Christian life is very practical at all points. It's all about obedience. It's all about deeds. And so this afternoon, we consider how obedience is crucial to every part of the Christian life. Obedience is crucial to every aspect and every part of the Christian life. It's crucial, we'll see in the first place, even when we fail. Even when we fail to obey God's law, it's still, our life is all about deeds. Second, it's all about receiving. Receiving obedience. Where we fail, we do not need to despair because there is an obedience for us. And finally, we'll see that the Lord is not content simply to provide obedience for us in someone else but that he also renews obedience in us by his Holy Spirit. So in the first place, then, we consider how we fail to obey. 
Now, nobody wants to fail. Nobody wants to be called a failure. In fact, talking about failure is an affront to popular culture today. To say that we are failures is offensive. To call someone a failure is offensive. It doesn't jive with the the popular notion today of the power of positive thinking. Uh, You can find this, you, you hear about it, expressed all sorts of ways and all sorts of places, even from Christian pulpits. You hear this message of the power of positive thinking. This is a message, of course, that is not the same thing that Proverbs says when it says a cheerful heart is good medicine. Of course, positive thinking, being positive is a good thing. But the power of positive thinking has to do with thinking positively about things no matter what, regardless of the facts or the realities or or whatever else is going on. Just think positively. Don't let any negative thinking come into your psyche. So if anyone calls you a failure, do not believe that. Push that out and just believe when people call you a success. Now, some people think that this is wonderful news. This is a great teaching that we should all pursue this idea of only thinking positive all the time, no matter what the reality, no matter what the facts. Just think positive. And again, the Bible is clear on a cheerful heart, on love and joy, all of those positive emotions. But yet the Bible is also clear that this idea, as it's popularly taught today, of the power of positive thinking is naive and deceptive. It's a lie. Now, the power of positive thinking may help the little blue engine get up the hill. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Maybe it helps your golf game. Maybe it even helps you in your career. But there are some areas of life where it simply will not work. One area of your life is with respect to God's law. Question answer 114, very shortly, very bluntly, calls us all failures. Can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. Maybe difficult to hear, but we all need to hear it. I'm a failure, and you are all failures in this regard. Now, we're not failures in every way. By the grace of God, we're able to do all sorts of wonderful things that are good and praiseworthy, and we'll consider those later on as well. But where it really matters, in keeping this perfect standard that God has given us for life, we are failures. God says in his word, do everything written in the book of of the law and you will live. And what do you do? What do I do? We fail. We all join our hands together for a big party of failures. We're all together in this. Not one of us is exempt. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? We are a bunch of failures. But do you know what? It's not bad news. The Ten Commandments reveal to us how we fail to keep God's law, it's actually not bad news. 
Now, the world tells us that admitting our failures is a bad thing. It says, don't believe it when someone tells you you're a failure. But it's not a bad thing. It's actually a beautiful thing. It's a most blessed thing. Yes, that moment of realizing that you fail where it matters the most is one of the most blessed and beautiful moments of life. Have you experienced that moment? Maybe you've experienced many times like that. It's a moment that David expresses in Psalm 51 when he finds peace in recognizing that in recognizing his own failure and sin when he committed adultery. He says in Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. He's not denying the fact. It's right there in front of him. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Later on, he goes on to say, Save me, O God, And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Recognizing his sin also caused him to recognize the beauty of forgiveness and brought joy to his heart. Asaph in Psalm 73, we talked about Psalm 73 last week. He finds great peace with God. But he comes to this recognition of finding great peace in God and in God alone to the exclusion of everything else in this world that may propose to give him peace. He finds that peace by coming face to face with his sins, with his failures. Psalm 73, verse 21, written 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That reality leads him to the very next verse where he says, Yet, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. It's that moment that's expressed by by Peter in Acts 3 when he says, Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and you may experience times of refreshing from the Lord. What all these Spirit-inspired men are expressing is the blessed, the good, the beautiful experience of recognizing that you're a failure. When your sins are held before your eyes, when you recognize the offense of your deed, and that reality, that knowledge brings you to your knees before God. Now, our failure is not good news when we deny it. We need to understand our sinfulness. But it is good news when we accept it, when we own it. If we don't recognize our sins, think about this. If we don't recognize our sins, then we have no reason to repent. If we have no reason to repent, then we have no reason for our sins to be forgiven. If we have no reason for our sins to be forgiven then we have no reason for a Savior. And if we have no reason for a Savior, then Jesus Christ means nothing to us. But Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed, happy, joyful is the man whose sins are forgiven. The Gospel of our Lord says, Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, 
and He will forgive your sins. When you come face to face with the reality of your failings with respect to God's holiness, God's righteousness, and the law that God has given us, then the times of refreshing can come. Then the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins means something, does something. Have you experienced those times of refreshing? The blessedness of coming face to face with your sins. If you have, you know exactly that it is a blessed and a beautiful thing. It's a, it's the hardest place to get to, but it's the most beautiful place to be. It's the experience that the well-known, that the hymn writer, Horatius Bonner, expressed in the well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, when he said, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. What's the reaction? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's through recognizing and confessing where we fail to keep God's law that we bask in the blessedness of the forgiveness of sins. When you're empty, then you can be filled. And so we consider now receiving obedience. Now, the impulse in our popular culture of labeling the label failure as bad is one that we can understand. If a parent makes a statement about their child and says, you're a failure, that hurts. If a teacher were to make a blanket statement about a student in her class calling that student a failure, we would be offended to hear that. In so many situations, it is a harmful and even a hurtful label. Most of all, because if it's used in that blanket statement kind of way, it's not true. So what happens when the preacher applies that label? Is that libel? We might recognize that some children and even adults wrestle their entire lives because they've received at one point or another that label. And they they wrestle their entire life to to shake that off. They, They struggle with the reality that a teacher or a parent may have been right. Even though they they don't accept it, they're asking themselves, am I a failure? Can I do nothing right? And that can lead to, to shame and embarrassment and humiliation. It can be a hurtful and a harmful label. So the question is, what about the Christian who believes this label is true with respect to God and his law? Do we as Christians then descend into shame and embarrassment and humiliation because we recognize that we're failures? Do we carry this around like a scarlet letter, like a tattoo on our soul? The answer is, no, we don't. We don't. We don't for two reasons. The first we've already discussed the reality of the forgiveness of sins. 
Because Jesus Christ took our sins and nailed them to the cross. So we bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. But there is more as well. Jesus Christ forgives our sins. But in fact, through the work of Jesus Christ, we also receive another label. It's true. A beautiful label. It's a label that is, is filled with, with success and with achievement and merit. Through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we receive this label from Him by faith. We receive this label over our entire life. Righteous. Obedient. This person has in every way fulfilled God's law. She passes with flying colors. She's the head of the class. She's worthy of the dean's honor roll, of the governor general's bronze medal, of valedictorian honors, of, of everything. Everything that was asked of this person was done completely to the highest possible measure. It was done perfectly. That label righteous is applied to our lives. Righteous is a full word. It's all about success and merit. It's all about obedience. Obedience to God and to God's law. Obedience, that's not mere obedience, but obedience characterized by, by love and joy and zeal. Obedience to the highest potential. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we, you, receive that label over your lives. You're reckoned by God to have been obedient in every good and perfect way. Romans 4, verses 23 through 25. The words it was credited to him were not written to, for him alone, but also for us. It's speaking about Abraham. Not written to him for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Romans 5 verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, nailed our sins to his cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guido de Bre, the author of the, of the Belgic Confession, summarizes this way in Article 23. We claim, we do not claim anything for ourselves or our merits, but we rely and rest only on the obedience of Jesus Christ crucified. His obedience is ours when we believe in Him. Perfect obedience of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. It's pasted like a label over our entire life by faith in Him. By faith that He has in every way fulfilled these commandments to the glory of God. 
And so we receive that perfect righteousness. Acknowledging that we're a failure doesn't lead us to descend into, into shame and embarrassment, but rather the very same time that we understand that that one label, we receive the other label of righteous. Now, as we consider the beginning of our obedience, if recognizing that you're a failure with respect to God's law may cause you to, to go too low and feel despondent, perhaps you wonder what's going to happen when this, this gift of righteousness is credited to our account, even though we've done nothing at all. Jesus Christ has done everything for us. Is that going to cause us to become too careless or too comfortable with whatever we want to do in this life? The question is, if the obedience of Jesus Christ is credited to us, if that label is applied over our lives, then who cares about his own obedience? What does it matter anyways? Well, who cares about our obedience? God does. God cares about it and he cares a lot. And we should too. It's true that God looks down upon us in love and favor and blessing because of the obedience of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But at the very same time, God calls us to be pure and holy in our lives. We're to respond to the holiness of our Savior. That holiness that we know is applied to our lives. We're to respond to that holiness with this desire to become more and more like Him. Perhaps you'll flip back a few pages in your catechism to Lord's Day 32, where it's it's spelled out quite clearly at the very beginning of the section on our thankfulness. Since we've been delivered, it says there, from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own, then why must we yet do good works? The same question is, why does anyone care about their obedience? And the answer is this, because Christ has redeemed us. That obedience has been credited to our account. The forgiveness of sins has been made real for us. But he also renews us. This same Christ, by this same faith, not only redeems us, but he also renews us to be his image so that we might praise and thank God. This is the purpose for which God has created us. Even more, our good works give evidence of our faith. Faith produces fruits. There is a response of faith in our lives. It's not possible that with the obedience of Jesus Christ being labeled to our account that we would not care about our obedience. It comes as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. And as well, it even serves as a testimony to the world to make the teaching, as the Apostle Paul says to Titus, of God our Savior attractive to the world. What Jesus Christ does for us in the forgiveness of our sins and the application of his righteousness to our lives, he also creates in us. Our gracious God works that miracle of justification and it's beautiful. That miracle of having that label righteous applied to our account. But that's not the full extent of his work. Beautiful as it is, he does even more. He also works the equally beautiful miracle of sanctification in the lives of his people. He takes the broken and troubled lives of the redeemed and he renews them and restores them to holiness. He works obedience in us. He makes us able to accomplish obedience in this life. 
How does he do it? Well, he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning we considered how Ruth was able to make that confession and that conversion because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not like the Holy Spirit leaves us alone after conversion, but instead, rather, as the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about conversion, as this lifelong process, the Holy Spirit continues to guide us in this all of our days. And so it's the Holy Spirit who works this obedience in us. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts. By faith we receive righteousness and forgiveness, and by that same faith we're also made holy. To work this obedience in our life, the Holy Spirit uses the law. The Holy Spirit uses the law, the Ten Commandments, the will of God as expressed in His Word. That's what's assumed in question and answer 115. Why does God have the law preached so strictly? The Catechism is assuming that the Holy Spirit is using the law in the lives of Christians. Well, God calls His will to be preached and to be preached with a keen attention to the weight and focus of the law to urge us to seek forgiveness and righteousness, as we've already noted. But he is also has this law preached to encourage us and guide us in the way of obedience. The law holds before us the, the contours, you might say, of perfection. The law shows us what the mold of perfection looks like. Do this, don't do that. Be on this side, not on that side. It, it forms this whole mold for perfection. Perfect is the person who, who fits that mold in every way, who obeys the law in every way. Therefore, that law shows us the very contours of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see the contours of the law as it's expressed, it shows us the contours of the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. And it serves as the mold for our lives, for our holiness, for our righteousness. It's the mold that Jesus Christ fills And it's the mold that Jesus Christ, by his work, is conforming us more and more to fit, to fit into. That's why God would have us keep the law front and center in our lives. To pursue forgiveness, to pursue the obedience of Jesus Christ, and also so that we might know the contours of a life of obedience so that we might appreciate the way that our Lord Jesus Christ walked in this world, and so that we, serving Him, might walk in that same way. Now, of course, you realize that even when we know the contours of perfection, we still have setbacks and disappointments. It's when you see the law and you start to understand those contours all the more that you recognize your own sins. So what do we do then? The temptation is to go to the law and to find in that law some kind of power to help us obey. But the law has no power. It's just like a mold. A mold has no power. It doesn't do anything. It just is. shows us these contours. For the power to obey the law, for the power of obedience, we don't go to the law. We go to God. We go to God, and as the Catechism expresses, we pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the one, remember, who works this in us. And so we go to God to ask for his help when we recognize our own sin and weakness in light of this law. In striving after obedience, we constantly pray to the Holy Spirit to access the Holy Spirit of power and to come before the Lord Jesus Christ, who in our life of obedience is before us as our example, is behind us as our reason, and is with us as our guide. And so you recognize that from beginning to end, our life, and therefore also our obedience, is all about Jesus Christ. Yes, the Christian life is one that's about deeds at every point. But all the more so, the Christian life is all about Jesus Christ at every point. The forgiveness of sins possible in Him. The obedience that He has accomplished for us. And the renewal of our lives that He works by His power. This is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 characterized the goal of his life as knowing, uh, the goal of his life, sorry, as Jesus Christ. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to be found in Christ. And I want to become like Jesus Christ. Not that I've already obtained all this, Paul says. Not that I've already been made perfect. We confess that we do not obey God's law perfectly in this life. We have only a small beginning of the obedience. But what characterizes the pursuit of obedience in our lives? The Apostle Paul said, I press on to take hold of that for for that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.